So Andy is a good friend of mine. We have been friends for the last 15 years. Uh, we worked together as colleagues for nine of those years at my, the, the last church that I worked out of, and Andy is still there. And uh, I know many of you who have uh, been here a while have, have seen Andy. He is often, um, as a good friend, often my go-to, especially the weeks that I'm not here because I know he feels very comfortable here and that he'll do a great job in my absence. But So I'm, I'm blessed. I'm delighted to actually be here and, and yeah. listen to you preach this week. So without any further ado, I want to turn the pulpit over to Andy to, uh, to bring us the word this morning. Thank you, Chris. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Uh, it is a delight to be here this morning uh, and have a, like a, a, something that I said that it was just off the whim about Marvel be used in a v- devotion this morning. Um, Chris made me seem much more profound than I actually am. So thank you, Chris. Actually, the other day I was uh, at my seminary and a professor came up to me. And he said, hey, I just read a paper and you are quoted in it. And I was like, what? Like, this is amazing. Like, who said it? I don't remember. I was like, okay, what'd they say? He's like, I don't really remember that either. And I was like, it could be awful. I don't know. But he's like, you were quoted. And now I'm curious to what that paper was and what I had to say uh, that somebody felt the need to quote me. It could be awful. I don't, I don't know. But uh, it is a pleasure to be here this morning with you all. Let me open us up with prayer. Dearest Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So occasionally, a movie comes out that just revolutionizes the genre of what that movie is, or perhaps even the movie industry. Now, as soon as I said that, you might be thinking of examples, maybe um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, or The Wizard of Oz, uh, Star Wars, which is my favorite, Lord of the Rings, Saving Private Ryan, Citizen Kane, one of those, and the list goes on. Well, one of these movies came out in August of 1999. And I uh, was starting my senior year of high school, uh, and I remember this movie was just causing a buzz. It was causing a stir. People were saying it changed the way horror movies or suspense movies were made, and that movie is The Sixth Sense. Okay, before I start here, okay, are people familiar with the movie The Sixth Sense? Yes, I see a couple nods because I, I work with students, college students, and the other day I was talking to them about this movie, and they're like, we don't, we don't know what that is. And I was like, what? You don't know? And so one, of, one of the students says, yeah, I don't really watch old movies. And uh, a piece of me died a little bit, okay? Um, so I'm glad you all know. Uh, and are much more educated about movies than my students, apparently. So uh, now, now, if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense... I'm about to spoil the ending for you, and I don't feel bad about that. The movie has been around for 23 years. Uh, You could say I was about to watch it after church today. We know that's not true, okay? So to give you a brief synopsis, uh, the movie is about a young boy named Cole. He's played by Haley Joel Osment, and he sees ghosts. The famous line, I see dead people. And of course, this terrifies him. It scares him so badly that uh, he's afraid to tell anybody. He thinks people will think he's insane for telling this story of that he sees ghosts. And eventually, Cole uh, confides with a child psychologist named Dr. Malcolm Crow, who's played by Bruce Willis. And Malcolm is trying to uncover why is Cole seeing these apparitions, right? So I went to see this movie with one of my friends, my, my best friend, and, uh, 
And from the get-go, I was just pretty mesmerized by what was going on. I was loving every minute of the movie. But about midway through the movie, there is a scene uh, where Bruce, Willis, uh, Bruce Willis's character is having dinner with his estranged wife. She seems to be giving him the cold shoulder, giving him the silent treatment, and he's just pouring his heart out. He's trying to reconcile their relationship. And it was at that moment, something went off. A light bulb went off in my head. And I leaned over to my friend sitting beside me, and I whispered, Bruce Willis is dead. He's been dead this entire time. And my friend, I still remember his face looking at me, eyes wide, mouth a little open, and he leans over and says like a good friend should, shut up, Andy, you're an idiot. Um, and finally, the movie, the movie ends, and the revelation comes out, Bruce Willis's character, Malcolm Crowe, has been dead the entire time. It's the famous M. Night twist, right, that he had to do in every single movie since. So uh, when that moment of revelation came, I leaned over to my friend, like a good friend should, and whispered, the idiot. And so you see, I, I came to this conclusion early because there were clues scattered throughout the entire movie that kind of gave it away. Uh, if you look closely, the biggest clue, I believe, is that Bruce Willis's character wears the same clothes or very variation of those clothes throughout the entire movie. And if you know anything about Hollywood, they have an endless wardrobe. I mean, people change from scene to scene like they have just the biggest closets in the world. Uh, so that was the first thing that gave it away. And the second thing where the light bulb went off when Willis was, uh, was having dinner with his wife, she seemed to be looking through him and not at him uh, as if he wasn't there. And I paired this with the fact that Willis is shot in the very first scene of the movie and it's never really like talked about uh, from then on. So I put those two things together and, and things just clicked for me because I believe that the clues were there all along. Well, when we look at today's passage, which is Luke 2, 1 through 20, it's the story of the angels appearing to the shepherds. We have a tendency not to look at it as a mystery being revealed to us. Um, but in biblical times, when somebody was reading this or hearing this for the first time, it would have been scandalous. It would have been shocking to the readers or hearers. Because Jesus was not announced to the elite, um, but to the despised. Well, how can this be? Because this is no way to treat a king. Um, this would have been shocking to them, but it shouldn't have come a shock because, like the sixth sense, I believe the clues were there all along. So let's discover these clues and let's go through this passage together. And that is Luke 2, 1 through 20. I will be reading it. So in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration under queerness, uh, when queerness was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, the, uh, was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known, uh, known this, the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So from the very start here, Luke, the author of this gospel, is setting up the context of this passage with a political underpinning, where once Israel had been ruled by their own king, they were now under a different rule. They were under Roman rule, and more specifically, they were under the rule of the current king, Caesar Augustus. That's mentioned in verse 1. And in the time of oppression, Israel wanted nothing more than to be free. They wanted to govern, their, govern themselves specifically in their own land. And so the Israelites waited for the prophesied, the promised Messiah, whom they believed would be this great king, this warrior king, who would come to save them from the Roman Empire. And I say all of this because it's the context of today's passage. It sets up everything. Luke is actually making a political comparison in this passage between royalty and between peasantry. And our chapter actually opens up with royalty. In the days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. So we, we see the mention from the get-go of Caesar Augustus. Um, Augustus was the first official Roman emperor. He was a fairly good emperor at that. He was a good political leader. He expanded Rome. He reformed taxation. He brought highways to Rome. He beefed up the army a little bit. And he was loved by many. But he was not loved by the Israelites. Because in 42 BC, the Senate of Rome formally named Julius Caesar as the divine Julius. The divine Julius. And this led to his adopted son, which was Augustus, being known as the Son of God. Um, a title that he actually embraced. He embraced that title. And coins issued by Augustus featured Caesar's image. And it read, it read this way. It said, Divine Caesar and Son of God. So during Augustus' reign, because of this, because he embraced it, emperor worship just skyrocketed. Um, though Augustus wasn't particularly harsh towards his captives, the Israelites, who were a monotheistic society, um, worshiping anybody other than God was a big no-no. There was only one who was sovereign over all, and it was Caesar. And so they wanted this messianic king to come and knock Caesar off his throne. 
And so the passage sets us up that this is what's coming. The Messiah is coming to do this, but it's not who you think it's going to be. And so then our passage shifts from royalty to peasantry with the reintroduction of Mary and Joseph. So in the world's eyes, Mary and Joseph were nothing special. Um, According to various traditions, Mary was about 12 to 14 years old, and she was most likely illiterate. Um, Her knowledge of scripture, or her memorization of scripture, would have come from hearing it at home or hearing it at a local synagogue. And her life probably would not have been extraordinary. She would have married humbly. She would have given birth to numerous kids. She wouldn't have traveled more than a few miles away from home. Uh, And one day she would die like thousands before her, a nobody and a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And Joseph, we don't know a whole lot about Joseph. Matthew mentions the most, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, but Joseph was a humble, poor carpenter. Uh, Tradition actually states that he was much older than Mary. He had previously been married and was now a widower, and uh, he actually had kids from his first marriage. But the point of this is that, that to the world... Joseph and Mary, they weren't significant. They were insignificant. They were peasants. They were poor. They were uneducated. And now uh, these peasants are forced to go to Bethlehem because of a census. And it is just so full of visitors that they can't find a place to stay. They can't find a guest room. And the only place that they can find is a lot where animals sleep. Uh, A stable, uh, traditionally a cave, uh, a common courtyard maybe where travelers uh, tethered their animals. And this is where Mary, in the most humble of circumstances, gave birth to Jesus. And she wrapped up her newborn and she placed him on a manger, which was a bed of disease. It was a dirty feeding trough, the most humble of circumstances. And this is actually after this birth narrative where things get really interesting, I believe. This is what it says, in the same region, so right outside of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day, in the, uh, in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The reason I find this particular passage so interesting is because Luke through Jesus, blows up our ideas of royalty and peasantry. Usually we would think of these two things as dichotomous, that they're irreconcilable. But Luke uh, paints these two subjects as not contrasting, but the same. These are the same thing. And that would have just been mind-blowing and shocking to Luke's original audience. Well, how, how can this be? How can the long-awaited Messiah, the Messianic King, be a pauper? I don't understand. And it all starts with what the angel said. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So that opening line, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Another, another way to uh, say this 
is this. I bring you the gospel of a great joy that will be for all people. I bring you the gospel. The word used here could also be gospel. So that is a big, big deal, and I'll tell you why. So most of us know that the word gospel means good news, right? And we would define it as that, and more specifically, we might put a a, a little bit more on that and say it's the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, right? And this is 100% accurate. Um, However, the gospel is much more rich than that. It's much more layered than that. And a helpful way to kind of unpeel this is by thinking of the question, what would the word gospel have meant to somebody in Jesus's day? Well, let's go through that. The word gospel uh, comes from the Greek word evangelion, uh, and it just means good news, like we know that to be. But it's much more because the gospel was a declaration. It was a declaration of good news that a new king has ascended to the throne. So a Roman messenger would go into a public courtyard in a city, a major city, um, full of the rich, the important, uh, important people, and, and then would declare, hear the gospel of your new Caesar. Uh, this happened to Augustus. Hear the gospel of your new Caesar, Augustus. It's a royal term. It's a proclamation, a declaration that a new king has come and is establishing his kingdom. And often, if we look in the Bible, uh, when we see the word gospel, it's often paired with proclaim or kingdom, which goes right in line with that. And this is exactly what we see happen in this passage, that the angel, God's messenger, uh, goes uh, into a, a different type of courtyard, Uh, The roles are reversed a little bit here. The courtyard is not in a city. Uh, It is not um, um, at the hub of society. The courtyard is now a field outside of Bethlehem. And instead of the rich, the important, the elite being given this message that there is a new king, the message is given to shepherds uh, who were viewed pretty poorly 2,000 years ago. Shepherds were dirty. They were impoverished. They were actually pretty despised. According to uh, the Mishnah, the Mishnah is a collection of Jewish oral writings that were collected in about the second century. Um, Shepherds were under a ban. They were cursed. They were regarded as thieves. And the only people, according to the Mishnah, that were lower than shepherds were lepers. And this is exactly who the angel gives the pronouncement to. And in this pronouncement, the angel actually gives three titles to Jesus, Savior, Christ, and Lord. So Savior would have been familiar to both Roman and Jews. Augustus, the king, was called the Savior. Uh, However, this role is now transferred over to Jesus, and Jesus' birth calls into question both the emperor's status as Savior and the peace of Augustus that gave rise to that acclaimed status. And so that's why the angel says that Jesus will usher in peace in verse 14, because that's what Augustus said. And the next thing, Lord, like Savior, was also used of Augustus. He was called the Lord. However, the angel pairs it with the word Christ. Uh, And these words paired together underscore the exalted status Jesus has in God's purpose and within the community of God's people. So this is what the angel is saying here. Here is the true God King. It's Jesus. It's not Augustus. It's not the Emperor. It's Jesus. 
Everything is played out backwards here. The king is a pauper, born to peasants. The angelic messenger comes to the outcast. It just doesn't make sense. Or does it? Because I think the clues were there all along, and we're going to take a look at those clues. Though others in the ancient Near East regarded shepherds as lowly, the Bible actually paints them in a very different picture. Shepherd motifs in the Bible are actually pretty positive. So in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David all had the profession of shepherd. And not only that, God is described as a shepherd. Psalm 23 is a perfect example of this. The Lord is my shepherd. The good shepherd leads his flock into green pastures beside still waters, two stray sheep, keeping them out of harm's way, and leads them back to good water. And he gives them life and abundance. He provides everything for them. Or we could take a look at Ezekiel 34, where we see God uh, mentioned as the chief shepherd. He's the one that appoints other shepherds. God himself will seek his lost sheep. He will tend to the injured and unify them into one flock. Um, God proclaims this in Ezekiel 34, 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And later in John 10, Jesus claims Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34 for himself when he says, I am the good shepherd, which you preached on that a little while ago, right? So the presence of the shepherds is not a negative point. Rather, they picture the lowly and humble who respond to God's message. And this shouldn't come as a surprise because God identifies himself with the neediest of people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian, died during World War II as a martyr. He says it this way, God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and broken. And if we paired this, what Bonhoeffer said with Isaiah 61, says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes. To, uh, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What Bonhoeffer and the prophet Isaiah were trying to say is that God is found in the low human, those who suffer or lack basic need, like the shepherds. God not only says the least of these, but he finds some sort of indefinable solidarity. What was done to them was done to him. The clues were there all along. And yet those who read this or heard this would not accept these clues. This, this is not our promised king, not our king. Where's the parade? Where's the parade? Where's the pronouncement? Um, this is a helpless baby born to peasant 
parents and worshipped by shepherds. Their definition of who Christ was or what the word Christ meant was very limited. So let, let's do another word unpacking here. Let's unpack the word Christ. Uh, the word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. Uh, often when we hear this title, uh, we would uh, define it as possibly with more modern terms like the chosen one, right? We often hear that in movies. Uh, the Messiah was chosen to uh, bring down this evil regime to restore peace. He was a savior. And we define it this way, but it's also uh, really how the Israelites defined it as well. Jesus was the savior. He, and the title of Christ, the title of Messiah, that encompasses that. But like the previous word, it, it's much richer than that. It's much more layered than that. So the word Messiah literally means the anointed one. Uh, anointing is a biblical ritual act where uh, one is, has oil poured over their head. It's used to dedicate someone to God's service. And if we read the Old Testament, there are three professions which uh, received anointing. Uh, we see prophets uh, received anointing. That was, uh, you can see that in 1 Kings 19. We see that priests received anointing. That's found in Exodus 28. And lastly, we see that kings received anointing. That's 1 Samuel 15. Prophets, priests, and kings. And so to say that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, is to say he fulfilled all three of these roles. Prophet, priest, and king. However, Jesus uh, wasn't just any prophet, priest, and king, but he fully encompassed all these roles in perfection because he was God. And so he was the prophet of prophets. He was the priest of priests. He was the king of kings. It's what we call the threefold office of Christ. And as the prophet of prophets, who better to be the spokesperson for God than God? God incarnate, that is God in the form of man, Jesus. As the priest of priests, Jesus was our mediator. He helps us come to the throne of God. Jesus is our king of kings. He established his kingship and his kingdom prophet, priest, and king. And so Jesus was the fulfillment of messianic prophecy in all three of these roles. But the Israelites only saw part of it. They couldn't see or believe that Jesus was the Messiah because they built false expectations on who the Messiah was and what roles the Messiah should have. They only saw him as a king. And the thing about expectations, false expectations, if broken, always lead to disappointment. If we are overly hyped to see a movie, we often build false expectations for that movie. And when that story, that movie, doesn't match our headcanon, we are left with disappointment. And if we ignore scripture, if we ignore the clues, and form in our mind what God should or shouldn't do, or should and shouldn't be, we are forming God in our image. And if we form God in our image, we will always be disappointed when God's story doesn't align with our headcanon. It's not that just the Israelites who did this, but we do this as well. And we must realize that we are not God. And that is actually a very wonderful thing. Because when we let go of control, when we know that God is sovereign, that he is infinite and we are finite, that his plan being revealed as it was in Jesus, it should bring us not disappointment, but joy. It should bring us joy as it did the shepherds and as it did Mary. It says, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, 
they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what these shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The shepherds had joy. Joy, glorifying, and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Now, the last time I was here, I spoke on joy, and so I'm going to repeat myself. Joy, to be clear, joy is not happiness. Um, Happiness can come with joy. It did that for the shepherds, and it did that for Mary. But the two are not synonymous. If you read John 16, uh, this is very clear. So what, what is joy? Well, if you take a look at the Bible, joy is a peace that comes through the manifestation of God's goodness and love. Uh, Is it happiness? Is it emotion? No. Um, Those things can happen with joy, but they are not joy. You see, joy is not the expression of happiness. Happiness is the expression of happiness. Joy is the expression of goodness. Goodness and hope. Goodness and beauty. Goodness through pain. Goodness uh, that is provided by the one who is all-encompassingly good. That's God. And if we define joy this way, then uh, that should change the entire way we look at this birth narrative when joy was made manifest through Jesus Christ. You see, the birth of Jesus destroys the logic of human expectation. The coming of Jesus, it levels the playing field. It puts all in the same category. It doesn't matter if you're a royal or a peasant, a man or a woman, young or old, where you were born, how much money or education you have, what race you are, what natural gifts you possess. If you're a human being, the Christmas story confronts you with your depth of your need to let God take control, to realize you are not your own God. And it also introduces you to the ultimate joy that comes to earth. He lay in a manger and one day he will soon hang from a cross all to provide for us the hope and joy we so desperately need in our lives. So this Christmas, when we we think about these things, we meditate on these things, let us look at the clues, the signs that God has given, that God has provided. Let us look at the humble circumstances in which Christ came into this world as poor and powerless. And let's let go of our expectation. Let go of our expectations, not scoffing or wanting more. Let go of our headcanon. Let's take a look at, at Christ and have joy that Christ has come and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's in these times that we realize how you came to this earth as a helpless baby, but how you came as joy. God, you are our joy, and let us reflect that in our own lives. Let us also be humble, dear God, realizing that you are in control of all things. You are sovereign over all, and let us praise you for that. We thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.